You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Garth Nix is the author of The Rag Witch, Shade's Children, The Seventh Tower series, and The Abhorson series. Thank you for joining me, Garth. It's a pleasure to be here, Rick. Garth, you've written in the genre of the fantastic from the get-go, and I'm wondering, uh, tell me about your reading experiences that got you to the point where you're interested in writing at all. Sure. Um, I've always read very widely, and I, I read outside the genre very widely as well as exhaustively inside the genre. Um, my fa- both my parents, my father and my mother, are both uh, very big science fiction and fantasy readers. So I grew up in a house full of all kinds of books, but with you know, a great deal of, uh, of science fiction and fantasy. So I was exposed you know, very early on to uh, almost anyone you care to mention. You, know, you, you mentioned one of the, the greats of the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, my, my parents had those books, uh, which is great training you know, for someone who wants to be a science fiction and fantasy writer. Uh, but I've always, you know, I've always read everything, you know, and I, I, I love all the genres. I love you know, a lot of classic literature, contemporary literature, and I'm a huge fan of nonfiction. I read a lot of history, a lot of uh, biography. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I'll read anything, you know, and often there's there's something something to be to be learned from it. Um, but I guess you know, my first love really is fantasy and science fiction, and when I started to write. You know, I wanted to write the kind of books that I most like to read, and that's that's why I started writing science fiction and fantasy. But I think I also seem to have a natural tendency towards you know, at least the fantastic, because even when I set out to write something that is strictly realistic, um, something normally happens, you know, somewhere along the line, and it, it goes strange, you know. So even when I try and be contemporary, realistic, you know, straightforward, it, it just doesn't happen. Uh, this is an inter- interesting uh, um, occurrence. So, um, do you find that the uh, tropes of a fantastic give you the ability to say something or do something beyond entertaining yourself to to write or address ideas that you can't get to with normal medic fiction? Uh, yeah, I think what I find most attractive about it is that you know when you're writing contemporary fiction or even historical fiction, which I also also love. You, the boundaries are drawn for you, and you have to work within those boundaries. Uh, when you write uh, fantastic fiction, you draw the boundaries yourself. You, I mean, you still have to work within boundaries. You can't just do anything uh, because you know it won't work. Uh, but but you get to draw that enchanted circle yourself, and then and then work within whatever you've defined. And I think that's what attracts me is that uh, that freedom to uh, to invent my own boundaries for any particular story or book. Uh, and I think I think that's I find that very attractive, and that's probably one of the main reasons I do write mainly fantasy. You know, I love science fiction as well, but I write far less of it. Uh, it strikes me that one of the things about fantasy, and especially the kind of fantasy that you write, um, you you mentioned uh, the boundaries, getting to create your own boundaries, and I think part of that, and the real jo- one of the joys of reading that, and I would. Hope, hope one of the joys of writing it is not just creating the boundaries, but creating the rules of the world. Talk about how much these rules are 
come to you beforehand and how much you they just spring to life as you're um, sure. encountering the plots and characters? It, it's a good question because, I mean, I, I think everyone works in different ways, but there are many fantasy writers who you know, find their world first and, and, you know, and work out how it works and, and they work out. And, and part of the boundaries is, is the rules and how, how everything works and if you have magic, how that works and so on. I'm, I'm not one of those people. Um, I try and create the impression that there's, there's much more there. And, and I, I once said, and I thought this was a wholly original phrase, you know, a fantasy novel should be like an iceberg. And it should be that the novel should be the 10% visible, but you should feel as if there's 90% hidden beneath the surface. And uh, I said this years ago, and then quite recently I, I saw that Hemingway said all novels should be like an iceberg, you know, the 10% visible and 90% under the surface. So I, at least I can comfort myself with, you know, I thought it was original, I'm, at least I'm thinking like Hemingway. Um, and, and I do think that's true, but uh, instead of starting, you know, and Tolkien famously had that 90%, you know, un, the 90% hidden, he'd worked it all out, the languages, everything and so on. I'm, I'm not like that in the, in the sense that um, I discover the world, the rules, you know, the boundaries as I'm writing the story. Everything to me comes from story and I work it out as I go along and it's a, it's a process of accretion and I discover what's happening um, you know, through the story. And, uh, and that, that's how I work as opposed to starting with the world and starting with uh, you know, everything that's in, in the background. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about your first novel, The Ragwitch, which is, has a really creepy concept at the heart of it. T- tell us how you encountered that concept and, and how you um, created characters who could deal with it. It's a funny question because I don't think it's that creepy, but everybody else does, so obviously it is creepy. Um, I mean, in, in The Rag, which I, I really set out to write a sort of harder-edged Narnia book. It's about two children who end up in, you know, go from our real world to a fantasy world, but one of them actually ends up inside the antagonist's head, inside the Ragwitch's head, and experiences what, what the... Uh, the rag which this you know this evil creature is actually doing in, in attempting to sort of reconquer her world, um, and I think that gave it a psychological edge that that makes it, it that makes it creepier. Um, but at the time, I, I I didn't think much of it. I mean, I was I was pretty young when I wrote that book. It was written in my early twenties, uh, published first in Australia when I was twenty six, and um, and I guess this is actually still true of all my books. I don't think about them all that much. I just try and write them and I'm trying to tell a good story. And what works for the story is, is what goes in. And then afterwards, you know, if, I, if I'm thinking about it, uh, I sometimes discover things or people tell me things and I think, yes, you are right. Um, but that hadn't occurred to me. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to write a, a harder edge Narnia book because I always thought that, you know, I love the Narnia books, but if, if children were transported into a fantasy world, it would be tougher and more difficult and grittier and scarier. And, and that's the kind of book I tried to write in The Ragwitch. Yeah, well, it, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I can just think of how scary it is as a kid if your parents left you behind the mall. That's totally Absolutely. familiar. That would yeah. be terrifying. But yep. in another world. So yes. <laughs> talk yeah. about creating that world and, and, and uh, writing it out from the perception of someone who's younger than you and, and more vulnerable and scared. I think I learned to write, as many authors do, by reading. And, uh, you know, I wrote a children's, my first, I wrote a children's fantasy because I love children's fantasy. 
And I think that I learned how to tell a story with you know a, a young protagonist from the books that I read, mm-hmm. you know, as uh, when I when I was younger and older, because you know I reread my my favourites. And I think it's a matter of just casting your mind back to you know when you were a child and inhabiting yourself as a child. And in many ways, you know, all my books are written for myself. They're written for myself as I was at you know ten or sixteen or 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 whatever. But they're also written for me now. And I hope that the books work. You know, I, I hope that my books don't have age ranges as such that they have like an entry level when you can start reading it. But there's no reason to stop just because you know you you are you know 50 or 70 or whatever. Um, you know, there's there's a point where you're able to read them and you're able to experience at least the top level of the story, the adventure level of the story. But there's more to it, and you can come back and read them again and, and get more out of it, or read it for the first time. You know, a, as an adult and enjoy the, the, the children's adventure story, but also uh, experience the, the other layers that, that I hope are there as well, and the emotional impact of the stories. This is a really interesting approach. I, um, I, I like this idea of an entry level of reading because it seems to me that um, there, there shouldn't be an age range to, to any book. A, a piece of literature is a piece of literature, and it's well written, whether it's written for you know children or not. I mean, we look at Alice in Wonderland, and it's a, a serious book, a very serious book with a lot of really deep and... But you can read it as a relatively young child on one level mm-hmm. and take something away from it, and, uh, and then as an adult take considerably more. I, I completely agree. I, mean, I think you know, age ranges as such are... Uh, sort of marketing conveniences that marketing conveniences that have become s- rather more concrete than than is good, you know, for anybody. People think you know, that they're prescriptive rather than just sort of suggestions. Um, and I think all books, you know, books do have entry levels, and of course that entry level is different for different readers as well, because mm-hmm. some readers are more sophisticated and more able to read younger than others. But you know, there's the, there are generalisms. You know, you can say roughly. This is for eight plus or nine plus or or, or you know whatever. Uh, as a writer, when you you know encounter uh, an image or a character that makes you want to you know tell that story, do you know where it's going to land when you encounter that character or image, or does it just unfold for you? When I first start thinking about a book, which often is just a single image of somebody somewhere. Or it may be uh, a little snippet of some some idea or some historical fact or something like that, which is the seed of the story. That's all I know. But typically, I think about you know even short fiction, but particularly books. I think about them for a year or more before I even write the first paragraph, and I'll make some notes and I'll let it all percolate inside my head, and then I write down um, a rough outline of what I think the story is. And and sometimes I then write a chapter outline as well. So I write a little paragraph for each chapter of the of the the book I think I'm going to write. But those chapter outlines are never never bear any resemblance to the finished book. You know, if you look at one of my chapter outlines and you looked at the finished book, you think, "Why well, you never wrote this book?" You know, but in actual, but I need to do it. And I think, you know, it's the process of doing the outline helps me more than the actual outline does. But I need to do the outline just to think the story through. And typically that. That gets me to the that gets me to the end of the book. And I always pretty much know the end of the book. I know roughly what I want. I, I know the emotional uh, f- impact or the feeling I want to achieve at the end of the book. But I don't know the details of how I will do that. 
Um, so I know, I know the big picture, but not the details. And in the course of writing a book, or in the course of writing something like The Keys to the Kingdom, which is a big story over seven books, there's a lot of surprising details that, that emerge and um, you know, need to be woven, woven into where I want to go. And, and that's part of the challenge. That's what makes it interesting. You know, I find out stuff as I'm, as I'm going along and I have to think, well, I, I want to get to this point. How do I get there from here? I have no idea. I better work it out. I like your description of writing chapters and outlines because I've talked to many writers and it always seems to be kind of A or B, either an organic approach where you start at word one and write through to word end, or you map it out and then you're kind of like Hitchcock, you know, having written the script, some anybody could direct it, it's yeah. it's all there. And, and I think this is a really a fascinating approach because you've really melded the two and it talk about when you is this something that is this the way you wrote your first book it is pretty much the way i wrote my first book it seems to be something that emerged um i still actually do write from a to b pretty much mm-hmm. i don't uh, do a lot of uh you know, some people do key scenes and then fill in around them and so on i i pretty much do start from word one and go on to you know whatever the ending word is word eighty thousand or word a hundred thousand but I do have that planning process in the beginning. And as I said, even though the planning doesn't, you know, the plan, the outline doesn't bear any resemblance to the finished book, it does seem to be a necessary part of, of what I do. I love that. But, That's um, great. Yeah, but it works for me. <laughs> yeah, but, everyone, uh-huh. but everyone does, everyone, you know, they work in different ways. Uh-huh. And you just fi- you find out what works for you, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it's very interesting writers talking amongst themselves of how they work because... You know, someone will say, I do X, and someone else will say, no way, you, that's impossible. You know, and they say, well, that's what I do, you know. <laughs> and uh, that's fine. What, whatever works. And finding out what works for you, I think, is a key part of, of becoming a productive writer. Uh, your works of fantasy have a, a really fascinating um, texture to them and feel. And, and it feels like um, you're drawn from the folklore of a land that we really can't quite grasp. Uh, tell us about some of the kind of images and the way that you create your kind of uh, folkloric, fantastic background. How, how does the fantastic coalesce in your mind? Well, I think what works the best is things that resonate with existing myth and legend. So you take something that already has some strong connection with myth, with an existing myth or an existing legend, even if it's one that you're not really familiar with, but it's something that, that feels, you know, you may have experienced it as a, as a fairy tale or a fable, um, or it may have actually, actually become sort of part of, 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 you know, English literature in general or so on. And you can connect back to that in some way or, or have some hook back to it it will resonate strong. It feels more real, even if you don't know the legend that it's based upon. Uh, so I draw quite heavily. I, I try and connect things back to things drawn from myth and legend that feel significant. Um, and, and there's some you know, obvious examples that are in fantasy across the board, like magical rings, for example. Uh, they're all through all kinds of myth and legend. We're predisposed to want to believe in them, so, but they've been overused now. So, you know, you have to be, have to be slightly trickier, I suppose, in terms of what, what you connect to. Um, but certainly I always try and underpin all my, uh, my settings and my ideas and so on with something that people have believed in at some time or some variant of it. 
and something that feels to me as if, if, if they didn't believe in it, they ought to have, you know. Um, so I try and make it as, if I can make it feel real to me, it will feel real to the author. And a lot of that is often drawing on history or, or myth and legend. That's, I think, one of the keys to the success uh, uh, of Sabriel is, you know, when you read it, it feels like it, like you should know it, like you should know this world. You should have heard it. It's maybe just a fairy tale or a Brothers Grimm or an Arthurian legend or some kind of something that we should know, or maybe it's a place we don't know. Well, I think there's a couple of things working to make, to make that happen in, in those books in particular. Uh, for example... Uh, the magical bells. You know, bells are pretty magical, weird things in themselves. Uh, so having magical bells, uh, I, I think you know, the, the idea of you know the using bells to work magic. Uh, essentially, it's always very hard to track down where ideas come from. But 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 that I know roughly where that came from, and in in because I was trying to think of what kind of magic would you know, necromancers do, and would would Sabriel do as a kind of anti necromancer, and I was thinking of of how people have believed you get rid of you know evil spirits and and things like that and exorcism of course is the classic way with bell book and candle and i thought well you know magic books the magic books are all through fantasy i don't want to have another you know look up a spell book type thing of course i have magic books but i didn't want them to be uh the sort of cliched you know have your spells in a book type stuff candles not very practical magic you know trying to light your magical candle in the middle of uh, some horrifying combat and bells i thought bells you know bells are in themselves intrinsically magical. You know, music is is mystical. And I was also reading Dorothy Sayers' uh, The Nine Tailors uh, murder mystery in which named bells are significant. And that led me to finding out that bells often do have names. They have Latin names in churches and sometimes they're even baptised with names. Really? And that, yeah, and that gave me the, the seven named bells in uh, the, the necromancers and, and the abhorsons use in those books and similarly you know the with death going into death you know, the river my river of death uh you know is is somewhat derived from the classical greek you know ideas of an underworld bounded by the various you know rivers you know the sticks and the lethe and so on but it, uh, also from a poem that i actually misread a, a very obscure 19th century uh poem I don't, I don't know who wrote it uh which i saw in a sort of strange old collection of poetry which I had one line I remember which said, come, said, well, I thought it said, come, said death, we must not bide, the way is long, we must catch the tide. And after I'd written Sobriel, I found the poem again, and it actually said, come, said time, we must not bide, the way is long, we must catch the tide. So that was a happy accident. Um, but I think, you know, the connection, again, the, these linking back into, you know, myths, legends, things that feel as if they ought to be magical or mystical as part of what helps make it make it work uh another thing that i think makes it work are, are your you know facility for names names can be very difficult but your names are both strange enough to be very evocative but familiar enough to make us think boy i think i should don't I know an Ab Horson family somewhere around there? Well, I mean, I'm, thank you. I work very hard on the names. And, and interestingly, Ab Horson I actually stole from Shakespeare. Mm. So it's uh, slightly differently, uh, slightly different spelling, but uh, Ab Horson in Measure for Measure is an executioner. And I was, looking f- I was looking for the name of an executioner. I felt this, is, this was someone who dispatched the dead, who made the dead stay dead, an executioner of the already dead, I guess, in a sense. 
And I, I looked sort of far and wide through all manner of, of uh, you know, myth, legend, uh, you know, old, very old texts and so on, until I found, totally by accident, uh, Abhorsen in Measure for Measure and, uh, and used the name. And then I much later found out that a derivation of the word is from uh, to abhor and a whoreson, which isn't quite the meaning that I wanted, but it still works. You know, it uh, it has a resonance without people knowing what it means, so it, it works. Exactly. You that's know. that's that's the the trick. Yeah, is to it have is a the resonance trick. without knowing what it means. And Sabriel similarly um, is constructed from taking the heraldic term for black, which is sable, and the I E L ending you find in angels' names, which is you know so resonant with power, you know, of a powerful angelic being. But I did a lot of combinations before I, I got Sabriel from Sabriel from Sable and, and IEL. And and often many of my names I'll I'll write fifty, sixty variations and I'll read them aloud to myself until I find something that works. And if it sounds right, I, I know I know that I've got the name. Boy, that's that's fascinating. Um one of the things uh about uh, uh Sabriel that I think is really interesting is it's a border story and I think border stories there's a there's an implicit power in border stories and something that makes them always seem contemporary because we're always crossing borders and particular borders of time and age moving from one age group to another moving from one place to another sure I like border stories myself I like the crossing between worlds uh, which I've done many times in, in different stories in different ways Part of the border story in Sabriel actually came, and the whole perimeter with the the sort of World War One trench line and you know magic sort of impinging upon the border, but not always. So you know sometimes they fight with their machine guns and, and modern weaponry, and some but sometimes it fails and, uh, and and so on. I think it stemmed from the fact that I wanted to write a World War One novel, but I wasn't technically capable of writing the historical World War One novel that I wanted to write. So. The thinking behind that got absorbed into the fantasy novel that I was able to write. Uh, so you know, it, it's interesting how you know thinking about one thing or working on one thing can sometimes you know it, it's abandoned, but all the good stuff gets taken into uh, into another book. And it strikes me too. You're talking about this being inspired by World War One. There's even though this book and you know is set in a a world that's clearly not ours. It has a feeling of contemporaneity, like it should be part of our world. And I and, and obviously you wrote it residing firmly in reality. There yes, was, uh, <laughs> one I, hopes so. One hopes so. Uh, talk about how uh, the the tropes of the fantastic and the creation of new worlds lead you back to our world. That's an interesting question. I, I think. For a fantasy world to work, it has to be firmly grounded in the real world. You have to build your fantasy world on top of the foundation of the real world. And part of doing that is to make your characters as real as you can make them. And if you have human characters or anthropomorphic characters, you have to make them as human as you can because otherwise the world won't work as well. So if you can make the characters real and get them in a setting that... that that works with those characters in it. I think that that's part of it. And part of it, I guess, is also knowing, is staying within those boundaries that you've set. And once you've made the boundaries, you can't arbitrarily, tra- you can't arbitrarily change them. 
to make the story easier for you or, or anything like that. You, you have to stay within those, those bounds, no matter how you know, difficult it is or challenging, and if it means chucking out chapters to start again because you've gone the, the wrong way. Because maintaining that reality, I think, is, is a very important part of making the fantasy work. And, uh, you know, it sounds um, sort of counterintuitive, but I think but for a fantasy novel to work, it actually needs a very strong dose of reality. Yeah, well, that's an, that's an interesting observation. Um, so tell us what's coming next. Uh, well, the, the final book in the Keys to the Kingdom series, the seventh and last book, Lord Sunday, is coming out in the United States in March uh, 2010. And at the moment, I'm working on a, a space opera, I guess. It's probably, will be, it'll be published as young adult. It'll be another one of my young adults that could be adult. Uh, and it's called A Confusion of Princes. And hopefully it'll be out. It's probably going to be 2011 now that we're almost at the end of 2009 and I'm still working on it. But that's, that's the next thing. And I've got a whole pile of other stuff uh, lined up behind it, including another couple of books which are set in the Old Kingdom, the setting of uh, Sabriel Lirel Abhorsen. So I've, I've got quite a lot of work to look, look forward to ahead of me. I've been speaking with Garth Nix. His, uh, he's the author of Sabriel and the Abhorsen series. Thank you for joining me, Garth. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.